you're about to get lucky with the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance with your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Welcome everybody to the next edition of Bare Naked Money, where you're going to get the bare naked truth about a smorgasbord of things. Uh, Josh and I went back and forth and didn't really have a huge compelling topic, but we had a whole bunch of quick hitters. So I think that this is going to be a bit, uh, a smorgasbord is a good word, don't you think, Josh? Yeah, a medley smorgasbord. We're in the dog days of summer, so there's uh, less and less of that big ticket stuff being reported right now. Yeah, medley makes it seem like it's all going to flow together like it's supposed to be together, but that may not be the whole case. But anyway, let's start off with something controversial, Josh. The role of men and women in the financial well-being of a family. And I'm going to quote a highly respected source. Uh, No, that's not true. It's a source. I don't even know it's highly respected. But it has an interesting conclusion. So the the premise of the question in the, the, the survey postulated how important is being able to support a family financially to a man or to a woman. And they asked men and women and said to them each, how important is this? It was interesting that men and women agreed or largely agreed on one aspect that 71 or 72% of both groups felt it was important for a man to be able to financially support support a family, but only 25% of men thought it to be important. And the shocking number that came out of this widely respected study, I said sarcastically, because I don't know, was only 39% of women felt it important to be able to financially support a family. So I thought that that was a little interesting and disappointing as a father of a daughter, who I hoped I had raised to to be more independent than this. But what say you, Josh? Do you think that this has any validity or any usefulness in the world? Well, first of all, I think it's it's important to kind of recognize that probably as much progress as we've made with the gender norms, we're still not fully at a state of equality. Um, and, but I, I guess I look at this from our business perspective and we all work with, uh, a large number of, of different households. And I think in a lot of situations, there's a split between what the responsibilities are for the husband and the wife. Sometimes that relates to finances. And I would say just anecdotally, I actually haven't calculated the numbers or anything, but I would say probably more often than not, the husband is the more financial one. But it's, it's, I think, a lot more evenly split than I would have thought coming into this business because that's not, not the, it's not the vast majority by any stretch, I would say. Do you agree? Well, absolutely. But I also, you, you raise an interesting point, and this is a bit of a bunny hole we go down having been married for over 30 years. The dividing up of responsibilities, not both being in the same kitchen at the same time, is actually one of the keys to a long and healthy relationship. Because again, if there's two people involved in making day-to-day decisions, then that can become cumbersome over time. Uh, so the dividing of responsibilities is is an important one. But also, and to Josh's point, I think I have, we have seen this change. It's more common to see the, the woman of a, of a partnership contributing more financially to to the relationship. But, but it's interesting to think that some of those older norms are, are still persisting. Yeah. I think if you asked this question differently and said not financially support, but 
um, more so just in generally support a family, I think it would be very, very important for both the, the men and women for them to think that the woman needs to be there to support the family um, more so. So I think we, that, again, coming back to the norms that we have in mind, I think that is something that has persisted as well. Yeah. And I knew we wouldn't be able to keep this aspect of our personalities out of this podcast because we can't look at any data without critically evaluating it and postulating a different way of asking a question and surmising as to what the outcome might be, because none of this is one dimensional and it's an interesting thought. The other, the other thing it reminded me of it, it's important. It's regardless of what everybody thinks they're contributing, either partner should be prepared to take over the other's role because it's oftentimes one person is left on their own for whatever reason to deal with the financial situations. And I make it a very big priority and a demand many times that both the husband and wife are present for conversations, at least at 30,000 feet. Yeah. If, if one member of the household wants to dive deep into inverted yield curves, not both partners need to be there for that, but both partners should be there to have a grand overview of what's going on and to have input in priorities. Yeah. So that's what this study brought to mind for me. Yeah. Uh, having been married for more than 30 days now, Colin, I'm going <laughs> to put, uh, put some notes down on your advice there. Oh, you should. You get two choices. You can learn it the hard way or you can just. <laughs> I just uh, had a meeting with a client and they told me that till death do us part actually means that I'm basically signing over every decision to Heather for the rest of my life. So, hey, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> that is a strategy that can work. Yeah. All right. So moving on here. So <laughs> this headline. I, I said to you, oh, SPACs are dead. There's a headline out there. You said SPACs are dead. I said, oh, no, wait, I'm wrong. It, it, the headline is actually SPACs go kaput. So not quite dead, just kaput. And then just assuming that not everybody listening to this episode has listened to every other episode, maybe you should take 10 seconds and explain what a SPAC is before we talk about their demise. Yeah. So <laughs> I think the first time we talked about this was probably two years ago and we were making fun of it at the time because the idea behind a SPAC is basically write somebody a check they say at some point in the future, they're going to buy something for you and, and call it a business. Uh, and that, that's really it. Like people might think I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, but that's exactly what a SPAC is. So when everybody was making really good money and the market was flying high and people were super optimistic on things, you had these, these companies popping up all over the place hundreds of them over the course of probably about an 18 month period of time. And when things became a little bit more challenging, guess what happened with most of these SPACs? They went down in price. The uh, companies uh, did go kaput actually in a lot of uh, situations. Uh, the deals weren't able to be found. So the article here said in, uh, investors that bought a SPAC, they might be getting their money back at some point because the SPAC itself hasn't been able to find that deal, that business to purchase. But by the way, you're not getting all your money back. You're getting a discount because of the fees and charges and whatever else that uh, it was incurred over that period of time. Yeah, I think the, the one saving grace to them was that yeah, I think you know, the SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation or something along those lines. And there was a timeline put on them because this was actually a, a documented thing. But it was uh, two years, I believe, they had yeah. from the time of raising capital that they had to deploy it in some something. It didn't, it didn't have to be defined. Many times when you raise capital, you have to define the purpose. These 
you didn't have to define the purpose, but you were given two years, which I think was kind of the saving grace of this because it doesn't get to sit there for 10 years and all get eaten up by fees. You should get something back after two years. But I mean, when the shack spec fails, I mean, what chance do other <laughs> other specs have? Well, Shaq's got out of SPACs, and I heard that Tom Brady and Matt Damon are getting out of crypto. So, oh, yes. The world is at an end when that happens. Yes, Matt Matt, Matt Damon, the fortune fit, favors the brave, but you know, doesn't favor all of them. So <laughs> That's right. So, so, some of the brave get their heads chopped off first in line. Well, there's a lot of very set, very determined people bodies laying alongside the trail leading to the top of Mount Everest. So just the world has a lot of heroes. Maybe you don't need to be one. So you want to move on to something else that, and we had a brief conversation about this before we came to, to record, uh, but not that much that this should go stale. Uh, there are now headlines about people who are coming out of retirement, going back to work because of inflation. And that's not normally a happy thing. But it is a reminder of the best laid plans of mice and men are just about equal. And even though you've got a good retirement plan, sometimes you can do everything right and still not get the outcome you're expecting. But, you know, the fact that some people are feeling financially compelled to go back to work, it's an unfortunate reality right now. I haven't seen it happen necessarily firsthand, but anecdotally, I have noticed stories being told of people like this. Uh, but it, it's important to recognize when you're putting together your financial plan, it's based on projections and those projections sometimes get surprised. Well, there's weren't a lot of people a year ago or two years ago were saying that, yeah, we're going to see a spike of inflation up to eight or 9%. That wasn't a commonly held thing. And if your retirement plan did not have enough slack in it, then yeah, you probably are facing some hard choices right now. And the hard choice probably is about maintaining lifestyle or whether you decide to go back to work to continue to fund your existing lifestyle. And those are never comfortable choices at that point in life. I don't know, Josh, have you seen any, any evidence of people having these conversations or thinking like this? Not, not a lot personally, but I think some of the data is starting to show that, but I go back to about a year ago and you had seen retirements spike because of COVID, maybe people were forced into retirement a little bit early. Maybe they started getting these CERB checks and they thought, hey, I'm just going to ride this to the bank for a little while. I can take a early retirement, quote unquote, instead of working for the next six months. So maybe, maybe now we're just seeing that trend reverse itself back to sort of that normal trend line. And this is not really that surprising. Hard to say though. Yeah, and it really highlights the danger of making a long-term decision based on a short-term situation. Uh, for people who made a decision because of, because of the pandemic to retire, well, the pandemic was a short-term situation. It was something that we were going to move through. And to make a long-term decision based on a short-term situation, there's, there's, there's a weakness to that. There, there, and maybe, it's, you're, maybe you're absolutely right. This is the, the comeuppance of that. But by the same token, maybe there's some people choosing to go back to work because of this spike of inflation that may or may not persist. Uh, so maybe, they're, again, making a, a longer-term decision based on a short-term right. situation may not be the most efficient or effective way to do it. Yeah, people have been asking me a lot about whether inflation is going to persist or not. And inflation for sure will persist. I, I believe that strongly, but at a level of 8% or wherever it is today, I strongly feel that probably not. And my rationale there is we've had about a 30-year track record of central banks being very capable of controlling inflation. Now, has that changed? 
I don't think so. I think they still have the same tools. I think they still have the, the same ability to set expectations with the, the populace. So I think we'll trend back towards a lower level when is a great question. We don't know that for sure, but certainly it's thrown a bit of a wrench into people's plans right now. Well, and it also comes back to that basket of goods and services that are used to establish inflation and what your basket of goods and services looks like in retirement. So there's, it's, it's not a universal thing. Again, increasing university tuition is unlikely to affect the lifestyle of a retired person unless they are super keen on paying for education for their grandkids. It, there's a good chance they could live their life and have a lifestyle without seeing the effect of inflation in certain kinds of things. But again, it's it's a matter of understanding that when you have a plan and you execute a plan perfectly, you still may not get an outcome you're looking for because the world will throw curveballs from time to time and they, they're material. And if you think you can organize yourself in such a way that none of this will ever affect you in any way, you're being optimistic. Uh, you you got to roll with it a little bit. Yeah, you mentioned, Colin, the idea of having some slack do you, do you think there's a, a right amount of slack to have in a plan? How do you know how do you know what the right amount is? Well, it, it, some of it's a personal choice. It's all it's, sorry, it's all a personal choice. So there's, there are people who are comfortable living on the edge, and they're also comfortable with if I need to change my lifestyle, I'll just change it. So for for that kind of attitude, you may not need very much slack. Live on the edge, knowing that you may need to change your lifestyle if financial situation changes. If you want to establish an absolute minimum level that you're unwilling to compromise, then yeah, you need to leave more slack in your system. And I don't think there's a way to put a number to that per se, but just understand in and of yourself what your mentality is like and how painful you would find it if you had to downsize to reduce your cost of rent or whether you had to give up golfing or whether you had to give up travel or all the things that maybe you were counting on retirement, how painful would it be for you to and then make a judgment call. But I don't think there's a number you can put to it, but I do think it's a conversation that you need to have with yourself to understand, yeah, this is the bare minimum I'm willing to settle for. Okay, you need to have much more slack in your system to to, to be comfortable. So maybe the biggest news of the week, Colin, is that Elon Musk is going to buy a soccer team. Does he have money left after he bought Twitter? I'm not sure. Well, I'm just so proud that I didn't know this. I am so proud of me that I actually missed this titillating piece of news. Uh, no, I, I was not aware uh, that he's, and I assume that's not the Halifax Wanderers he's buying. Um, and and he, he's got a lot of money left over after buying Twitter, seeing as how he didn't buy Twitter. Not yet. Uh, I think we're going to continue to talk about that for a while. But somebody really needs to get between him and his keyboard. Like He needs to have a sober second thought in the room before he starts pontificating. Uh, he gets way more way more column inches than I would suggest that it's probably worthy. But again, I'm going to go back to being very proud of myself that I didn't know this. I think if anybody at this point is listening to him for anything outside of entertainment, you're doing something wrong. But I'm. Uh, it's kind of weird. I'm kind of liking Elon Musk more as time goes on because he just becomes more and more of a troll and it becomes more and more absurd. And it's it's kind of past my point of peak hatred for him. And now I'm like, oh, this, this guy's actually kind of funny sometimes. <laughs> well, Josh, you make an excellent point as you often do. Our fear is when people listen to Elon Musk's of the world that they're taking it as some kind of information they can use to make decisions with. If you're just looking at him for entertainment, have at it. 
read all his stuff. If all this is, is is entertainment. If you read something he says and you come into my office talking about a plan that was was inspired by Elon Musk, I will mock that, that that's going to happen. But if you're just listening to it for a fun story, have at it. Absolutely. That's a great use of that information. How does that plan start? A plan in star, uh, inspired by Elon Musk. How does that even start? Oh, Dude, you're underestimating you know, the, the industriousness of, of many people out there when it comes to consuming information. All right, so Josh, why don't you make a comment on oil prices and gas prices as somebody who spends a lot of money on gas commuting? Not as much as I used to now that I moved closer to the office. But uh, True. yeah, I mean, look, I think we, we all basically ask any Canadian, they can tell you what the price of gas is give or take, and they can tell you how it's trended over the last couple of weeks and couple of months. And so, yeah, we've seen it come down. And so three months ago, six months ago, when we saw gas prices and oil prices specifically spiking aggressively, we said, hey, you probably shouldn't expect that this is going to go on forever. Just like you were talking about earlier in the podcast, these are short-term trends. And certainly with commodities, we see them be a lot shorter term than a lot of other trends that are out there and they are very cyclical. So they tend to go up, they tend to come down, they tend to go back up, they tend to come back down. And so right now we're seeing them come back down a little bit after they spiked so aggressively earlier this year. Is it surprising? Probably not. We didn't really know exactly where they were going. We thought that they were probably a little bit high in the longer term, but uh, it's been welcomed, I think, from everybody that's dealing with inflationary pressures right now. Uh, in their their month to month expenses to see gas prices come down a little bit. And it's it's interesting because people I think equate gas prices to inflation. So and I think there's been studies that have been done that show the price of gas, the changes in the price of gas are highly correlated with people's views on inflation. And that makes sense because you're this is basically broadcast to you. Every day, every turn you make, every turn you make has a gas station on it, and they're all showing you what the price of gas is. So even if you haven't filled up your tank in a week, you still know what is happening with the price of gas. So that inflationary aspect of your your spending is so front and center all the time. Well, yeah, I also think it's an important time to remember that in June, when oil prices were over $120 a barrel, you could see commentators talking about $200 a barrel oil, $250 a barrel oil, because, oh my God, it's been going up there for it goes up forever. So that was in the zeitgeist. Those, those kind of conversations happen when it's at that level. And here we are sitting in August and it's 90 bucks a barrel. So again, these, these trends reverse and you don't always know when and why. But again, I've said it to, I've said it a number of times. This is the first time in my memory I can remember retaining the fact that gas prices actually fell going into the long weekend in August, because that tends to be a peak time of use. Like, that's one of the biggest driving weekends of the year in North America. And the fact that gas prices were dropping around that time means it overcame all that in surge in use, uh, in theory, because the people are traveling more. And that was overcome and, and gas prices still fell. So this is one of those things that's counterintuitive to the narrative that was being built as recently as June. And this is one of those things that complicates everything because it feeds into everything else. Your fuel prices are going to feed into your food prices over time, right? So there's, there's all kinds of knock-on effects from this. So anybody that thinks they can look at one or two data points and say, yep, this is what's going on and it's going to keep going on forever is underestimating how complicated the game is. Yeah. Now that leads into a question that I know you'll have a perfect answer to, Colin. 
So we've seen markets come up for the last eight weeks or so. It's a challenging start to the year, but pretty good last eight, eight weeks or so. Have markets bottomed? I'm sure you can tell us. I am so disappointed you got to the punch on this one and asked me first because I really wanted to ask you this question, Josh. I mean, the short answer is, and this doesn't play well for podcasts, we don't know. It, it, there are reasons to be optimistic right now, but there are also still risks. And I guess the most vivid risk or the most vivid thing I can point out to people that resonates is, I don't know what is in Vladimir Putin's head. He invades another country over the weekend, or there's other, some other significant geopolitical event, then all bets are off. Now, we earlier in this conversation, we're talking about some of the deflationary forces that are out there. So there's a case to be made for some optimism on that front. But then the interplay of all the various factors make, again, the immediate future unknowable. Um, it's been a nice run. It's been a valid run. It's it's probably tied to the fact that things were not as bad as people were projecting in June. And there, there has been an easing in a whole bunch of things that people thought were going in one direction forever. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's really hard to say at this point. There's reasons to be optimistic, but there's also reasons to be fearful. Josh, do you have a better answer? You must have a better answer. You read way more stuff than I do. So you must be, all the smart stuff you read, there must be a better answer. You know what? I, I think the big thing that has kind of contributed to the markets rallying here a little bit has been the, the sort of cresting in the inflation numbers. So we are super worried about this and rightfully so. It was a big deal, but we've been thinking that this is going to happen for many months now. And finally, we're starting to see some of the, the inflation numbers crest a little bit and come back down, which is a good thing. And is giving people a little bit more optimism that, hey, maybe the world's not coming to an end. Uh, as our analyst Dave said a couple of weeks ago, and he often comes up with great philosophical quotes, it was, uh, he, he said, it's usually when things look bad, they're usually not as bad as they look. And when things look really good, they're usually not as good as they really look. So you just always, we try to encourage people stay on a little bit more of an even keel. Don't get too high when things are good. Don't get too low when things are bad. Even though that your emotion and every instinct in your body is driving you to, to be that way, it's probably not the right response. And certainly your emotions not helping you make any better decisions. That's for sure. So have we seen the bottom? Seems like it in the short term, but yeah, as you said, there's a lot of uncertainty out there still, as there always is. So we never really know. All right. So there isn't a better answer. Thanks. I, I feel validated. <laughs> the The better answer is if you have a decent, decently long time horizon, uh, we're very confident that you're going to be better off two years, five years, 10 years from now than you are today, if you have that, that type of time frame. So, and, and, I and the right answer for if you don't have that type of time frame is you probably shouldn't care about the markets at all, whether they're bottomed or at a peak or anything like that. You shouldn't be in them at all. And the other thing I can state with authority is it's uh, this is a better time to invest money than January was. So, but that's backward looking and not all that helpful. So, Josh, how about we end with a little bit of a history lesson that builds forward into a new regulation from the Canadian Revenue Agency? Are you ready for a story? I'm always ready for a story, Colin. So in 1936, the Duke of Westminster had structured his affairs to allow for a deduction of an amount paid to his gardener that would otherwise not be deductible. The British tax authorities did not like this. So it went to court. So the court found that it was 
it was acceptable for a taxpayer to organize their affairs in such a way as to minimize their tax, and they cannot be compelled to pay increased tax. So the decision gave birth to what's known today as the Duke of Westminster Principle and is referenced in hundreds of tax court cases here in Canada. See? See how educational that <laughs> compelling, was? Very compelling. That that well, that Duke, he's uh he's gone down in history in the tax law. Very, wait, very well known. Wait for the compelling twist. So obviously tax people don't like this. So in Canada, we had something that came into limit the Duke of Westminster principle. It was called the general anti-avoidance rule. It was introduced in 1988. And broadly, it was meant to catch everybody who was loophole hunting. So basically, if you were going to great lengths to try to do something in a really complicated way for the sole purpose of paying less tax, the general anti-avoidance rule would apply. And that was launched in 1988. So that's when somebody comes to me with a really aggressive tax planning strategy, and I've heard lots. Even if there's not a specific rule against it, that doesn't mean they will not apply GAR. But that was 1988. This is 2022. Guess what happened to the poor CRA? They went to court and they lost a couple of court cases over their use of GAR. The courts found that the general anti-avoidance rules were not well enough written to cover off all of the circumstances that CRA felt were appropriate. So they lost a court case. Josh, what do you think happened next? <laughs> well, just so I'm really clear what these GAR rules mean, Colin, it means that I can do everything exactly by the letter of the law, avoid tax in a totally legal way, and the Revenue Canada CRA still puts the hammer down and I still it's, owe them tax? It's not the le not legal way. I will read this to you because you've asked and I think people would care. So GAR goes something like this. The government introduces a new tax law to shut down a particular tax planning idea. You can go back and look at income trusts, kitty tax. There's lots of introductions of new tax rules to shut down a certain behavior that they found they find to be distasteful. Two, tax professionals find a way to get around the new law with a new idea. Three, the government adds another rule to shut down the new idea. Four, only to have tax professionals devise a way to get around that new law, rinse and repeat. So what they're trying to do is get away from chasing the rabbit. So there've been many examples where GAR has been applied and on, you can see what the targets are going to be because again, there's everything from the, the fine art uh, scam that was run where you could make a thousand dollar donation to a charity they would use it to buy fine art that would appraise at $5,000, therefore give you a tax receipt for $5,000, saving you more than $1,000 in tax, so you made money on it. That ran for a few years. CRA eventually went back and shut all that down. So there's some pretty obvious examples of where this applies. To answer your question directly, yes, you can do everything by the letter of the law, and CRA can still come back and say, no, we're disallowing it. That absolutely is true. So you have to make sure that and this is why we talk about tax planning in terms of how aggressive it's being. Well, there's a line. If you cross a line, you may immediately run into hot water, or you may put yourself on a list of people who are going to regret having crossed that line at some point. Because CRA can go back quite a number of years, and if they consider it to be fraud, they can go back even further. So you have to be careful. But as of tomorrow, da -da, 2022, 
they have expanded the power of the general anti-avoidance rule to overcome what they encountered in tax court. So let me summarize for you. If you think you've outsmarted the tax system and you followed all of the laws and you think you were in the clear and think you got away with it, even if you went to court and won, CRA has the power to change the rule and come back after you if they really want. So be super, super careful in your tax planning. Being overly aggressive can seem like fun, but when you're arguing with the people who make the rules and have the ability to change the rules if they lose in court, you're dealing with somebody who eventually is going to win, and I really don't think you should pick a long-term fight with them. And you can go look this up for those who are super, super interested in it uh, because it is brand new breaking tax rule changes. And this is why we set up our offshore corporation in Panama. <laughs> You're so funny, Josh. You're so funny. <laughs> anyway, I, I do think that's important because it does reinforce the idea that if you think you're putting one over on CRA, they, they, no, it's not going to last long term. So please don't. Yeah. Can't fight the man. Well, you young folks try, but then you get tired after a while and you turn into me. So <laughs> can't, can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't rush. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate your listening and hope everybody has a great rest of the summer. We'll talk to you soon. Share and call. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth, Inc. IA Private Wealth, Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth, Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice. As an Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. This should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.